0: Um, but Chuck is not with us today. He's with uh, um, the True Love Center Church in downtown Phoenix, trying to help them grow and what it means to be a church that has a meaningful membership. So you guys are stuck with me today. Um, it's really such a privilege to, to be able to preach to you all, Church on Mill, today. Um, as I was thinking about this, I just, I just love you guys. I love Church on Mill, and I think about the different faces that we're going to be here and the ways that you have blessed me and my family. And um, I just really pray and hope that, that the work that I put into this uh, would be an encouragement, but primarily God's Spirit and His Word would bless you. If you're new today, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, while you don't know me and I, and I don't know you, I have prayed for you as well, and that you would see the gospel in the sermon, and you would see it in the people that are sitting around you. And if you're not a Christian, I'm especially glad that you're here this morning. I pray that you would see the true gospel and not a fake today. This fall, we've been walking through the book of Galatians as a church and are just coming up to the end of kind of our first major summit. As we've discovered in the past few weeks, the book of Galatians is unapologetic in the repetitive message that we are saved by grace alone and not by works. Another way to say that is... uh, You and I are never going to be good enough for God. But Jesus was good enough. We will see that this is the song of all of Galatians, and it's really the song of the entire Bible. We are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. This gospel can be repetitive, and it should be, because we never move past it. You never graduate from the gospel. You never attain a higher level and grace. While this is true, let us not think that our actions do not matter. Our actions often show that we, what we truly believe, and our actions have real consequences, real consequences that can be either good or bad. We're responsible, you see, for not only what we believe, but also for what we do. Imagine with me for a moment, a husband, and he says to his wife, I love you. I really love you more than anything else in the whole world. But he does nothing to show it. They don't go on dates, he never buys flowers, gifts on birthdays are more obligatory than thoughtful, vacations are always work vacations, and most of the time he'd rather just go hang with his buds. And now after five years of marriage, he's proposing that they move back in and live with his parents. We would rightfully question his understanding of what marriage is what love is. In fact, we'd probably question whether he really does love this woman. Does he really even want to be married? We would also notice the consequences that this leaves on his family. How is his wife being affected? How is her soul? What are the children learning about love and marriage? How are the dozens of friends and family impacted and changed as they see this? we might say to that husband, dude, your actions are not lining up with your words. Because you see, our conduct must match what we say. It must match our doctrine. Or we're condemned as hypocrites. This morning we'll see this in the most unexpected person of all as we read and finish the second chapter of Galatians. And now before we read the scripture for today, let me try and set the stage for it. If you have your Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the chair in front of you. We're on page 566 in those Bibles. This text can be pretty easily uh, segmented into two primary sections. The first is verses 11 to 14, which concludes Paul's testimony, his defense. And then the latter, verses 15 to 21, shows Paul's principle or his gospel. So if Galatians 2, 11 to 14 is the conclusion of his defense and testimony, then we should remember where it all started. If you were with us two weeks ago, we saw that it started all the way back to chapter 1, verse 10. And since then, Paul's been giving his personal story of coming to believe in Jesus and the reason the Galatian church should trust what he says. And let's remember apparently, there's been growing opposition to why these guys would even trust what Paul says. To help us remember where we've been, flip back a page to chapter 1. He starts off with this intro, the first five verses. Hey, it's me, Paul. Next sentence. I can't believe how stupid you guys are. That's the original Greek translation. And then with like a written stutter, he repeats, if anybody preaches something contrary to the gospel, anything contrary to the gospel, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. He says this twice. We could say Paul's not buttering up the Galatians. And in many ways, Paul is going to say even tougher and harsher things as we go through this book. Knowing he's writing all of these tough words, and he's writing to a group of people who've already begun to sway in their trust of him, Paul spends from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way until chapter 2, verse 14, to remind and persuade the Galatians they can trust him. Pastor Chuck, in an earlier week, said, think of these verses like uh, a courtroom scene. And Paul saying, put me on trial, put my life on trial. You can trust me. A quick summary of what Paul has said so far in his defense. So for starters, Paul was the last person who would ever receive the gospel. But the risen Jesus revealed himself and taught him personally. He didn't receive the gospel from man, but from Jesus himself. And then the Holy Spirit worked in Paul, and he began to have a fruitful, massive ministry that furthers, evidences his, con- his conversion. And then last week, Pastor Chuck walked us through the first 10 verses of chapter 2, where Paul, Barnabas, and Titus go on a 300-mile road trip to Jerusalem. And after some tough conversations, even the apostles in Jerusalem recognized Paul's ministry and gospel to be legitimate. So again, these are all reasons that the Galatians can trust Paul's teaching. And now we come to uh, chapter 2, verse 11, 14, and we come to the final reason, the pinnacle of Paul's defense. Why is trustworthy? Let's hear what he says. Um, I've asked Avamshi if he would come up and read the text for us. And again, this is uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21.
1: I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves uh, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose.
0: Great. Thank you, Vamshi. Like I said earlier, this section can be broken up into two primary parts. Paul's testimony, and then Paul's principle. Let's start with Paul's testimony. Look again with me at chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So real quick, here in Galatians, Peter is being referred to as Cephas. Cephas was Peter's Aramaic name. And so for the rest of the morning, I'm going to try to always say Peter. But if I ever say Cephas, just know they are one and the same, same guy. Remember back to last week in Chuck's sermon, Peter and Paul just had a sharp conversation about, do do you guys remember what they were talking about? circumcision, and they had the conversation right in front of Titus, a Gentile. I think Chuck put it that Paul brought Titus as a visual aid for the debate. But Peter and the other apostles rightfully assessed that to force Titus, a non-Jew, to live by Jewish circumcision laws would undercut and undermine Jesus and his gospel. Jesus, plus anything, is no gospel at all. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And if you look at the end of that conversation, there in chapter 2, verse 9, it ends with Peter and the apostles extending the right hand of fellowship and affirming Paul's ministry. And now verse 11 picks up. But after that, Paul and Peter are in another conversation and there's conflict. Just imagine with me what that might have looked like. Let's think about who Peter is. Peter was one of the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus. Even more so than just being one of the 12, he was one of the three on the inner circle with Jesus. Even more so than being on the, one of the three on the inner circle, he was the spokesperson of the disciples. This was the Peter from Acts 2, who courageously, boldly preached, and thousands were saved. And the first church began. This was the Peter who was not just an apostle, but the first among equals, he was leading the church in Jerusalem. He was having visions. He was doing miracles. Paul was opposing that Peter. And not only opposing him, look at the end of verse 11. Paul says, he, because he stood condemned. Man, to have been a fly on a wall during that meeting, Peter stood condemned. We should stop and just ask, what the heck does that even mean? First off, what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Peter had lost his salvation. No, that's not even possible. If you're a Christian here in the room, then that means that God, the God, the God who created all the stars and planets, who speaks and there's something from nothing, the only being that has never lied, that never comes up short, never gets tired, never fails, the God that raises dead people to life, that God... Capital G, God, has saved you, secured you, keeps you. If God saved you, who could damn you? Satan? No. Satan is just created as well, and he's been dealt with. If God has saved you, holds you, and says he will never let go, how could you ever be lost? Can your human will, your decisions, your actions, overcome the will of God? No. Christian, if you struggle with this, and you're likely not the only person in the room struggling with this idea, this idea that you could lose or you've lost your salvation, remember, you are, not, you are saved not by your works finally, and therefore, you are not kept by your works primarily. All credit is Christ's. If you've been saved by Christ, you are secured by Christ. So what does it mean that Peter stood condemned at the end of verse 11? Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Peter stood condemned because he began acting hypocritically. Verse 14, because his conduct was not in step with the gospel. If you write in your Bibles or take notes, underline that. Peter's witness was lying. His life did not match up with his confession. His actions really do matter. You could say it was like worship on Sunday morning didn't match up with the actions the the previous Saturday night. You could say it was like his bio on Facebook and Instagram that says Christ follower. They don't match up with the hundreds and thousands of posts that just glory and everything else that the world glories in. You see, our conduct must match our doctrine or we're condemned as hypocrites. So, where did Peter fall off the wagon? Let's look at verse 12. Let me try to reconstruct what kind of has occurred here. Peter comes up to Antioch and he was eating with the Gentiles. So, let's imagine a big room where everyone would come for dinner after a hard day of work Jew, Gentile, Paul, and now Peter. Uh, They're all um, in this room after work, sweaty, stinky, and they're hungry. They're ready to start pounding some hummus, or more likely fish and bread. And here in Antioch, Paul ate with the Jew and the Gentile alike. And when Peter had first come, he did the same, at least at first. Jew and Gentile, all in the same room, all at the same table. But certain men came from James. And when they came, he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he feared the circumcision party. Now, what did Peter fear? Again, the Peter. Remember back in Acts 5 when the Jewish leaders threw Peter and the apostles in jail and an angel of the Lord broke them out? They had a jailbreak led by angels. What is Peter so scared about? To help us understand, we need to consider who this circumcision party is. This will be the most technical part. So take another sip of coffee and try to really dial in, pay attention for a minute. While we don't have 100% certainty, it is most likely and, and it really makes the most sense to understand the circumcision party as unbelieving Jews and separate from the men who came from James. The circumcision party was zealous and persecuted Jews who stopped following the Old Testament laws. This was the party and sect of Jews that Paul would have been very familiar with in his former life. As Saul was throwing Christians and Jews, carrying people off to prison, even killing them, the circumcision party was most prevalent and strongest in Jerusalem, where Peter and James both call home. So now, with all that in mind, look again at verse 12. Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with both the Jew and Gentile alike. But after... These men came from James. He is fearful. So did James send a bunch of Jews of the circumcision party up to Antioch? No, that doesn't seem to make sense. Why would James even be running with that crowd? He's an apostle as well. No, more likely, James sent messengers to Peter because the circumcision party down in Jerusalem, which had already been persecuting Christians, was now going to ramp up their efforts. Likely, the circumcision party had gotten news that Peter is up here in Antioch, and now not only is he not circumcising Christians, but now every meal, they're defiling the Old Testament laws, and they're not eating kosher food. This is just adding fuel to the fire, and the frustration of the circumcision party has now turned toward the Christians in Jerusalem even more so. Their anger and their hate burns even hotter so James sends messengers up to Peter to remind him, Peter, you've got to be careful. I know you're all the way up here in Antioch, but remember us back here in Jerusalem. The way that you're acting, it's, it's causing us to be persecuted even, even more. There's consequences for these kinds of actions. And now the great Peter, fearing the circumcision party, makes a little more sense. If you read through Acts 1 or uh first and second Peter, there seems to be little or no preoccupation on Peter's mind about his own physical well-being or safety. Like Christ, he was laying his life down every day for the brothers. No, Peter wasn't worried about himself. He was worried about what this party might do to his brothers and sisters, what they might do to the, the new converts back in Jerusalem, what they might be doing, what they might do to their children. In many ways, his fear grew out of a, a compassion even for his flock. And don't these verses make a little more sense now? Peter feared what was happening to his fellow Christians back in Jerusalem. They were already the poorest under some of the heaviest persecution from the Jews because they were in Jerusalem. Maybe if he just started following you know, some of the Old Testament food laws, the circumcision party would get word of that as well, and persecution might not be as intense I think most of us in the room could kind of see that point, even have some kind of empathy for it. Apparently others did. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So after these certain men from James came, and likely very persuasive to Peter with the problems arising back in Jerusalem, not only was Peter convinced, but the rest of the Jews were too. Note even Barnabas. No doubt, Peter was the top dog, no question about it, and his actions had now swayed the Christian Jews in Antioch. And while we can have empathy and even some understanding of this rationale, when Peter made that decision, he stood condemned. Why? Because it was two-faced, it was hypocritical. Verse 14, it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So a quick tangent, and if anybody is uh, kind of zoned out, zoned back in now, this is maybe the most important thing that I'll, I'll say in the, the whole morning. Irrespective of whether you would consider yourself a believer in Jesus or not, the most important thing for you today and every day is to hear, believe, and trust in the truth of the gospel. While it, be, while it can be said in many ways, the essence of it is always the same, In the introductions of Galatians, Paul says and recounts this gospel message. He says, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He was raised from the dead and has extended grace and peace to us who do not deserve it through the will of God the Father. You see, Peter confessed that gospel to be true, but by his actions of following the Old Old Testament dietary laws and encouraging others he was nullifying the truth that he spoke and believed. You cannot be genuine and true in anything if your words say one thing, but your actions in your life do the opposite. And the bigger the stage or spotlight on you, the greater the impact of your genuine faith or the greater the impact of your condemning hypocrisy. And there was no bigger spotlight than the one that shone on Peter, He was the most prominent figure of his time, and his example would would give further evidence and credence to observe Old Testament laws. People would begin saying, yes, we're saved by faith in, in Jesus, but, you know, really mature Christians, they still follow the Old Testament laws. I mean, even look at Peter. Do you see that our conduct must match our doctrine or we're condemned as hypocrites? And our hypocrisy is not in a vacuum. It affects others. In this case, Peter was affecting Barnabas and all of the Jews in Antioch. But for you, if you're acting Christian, if you're acting hypocritically, your your actions don't just stop with you. This is affecting others. It ripples out. Do you see how the truth of the gospel is at stake? Verses 11 to 14 shows Paul's testimony that he called out the Peter for being a hypocrite. Now let's consider Paul's principle in verses 15 to 21, where he impacts in no uncertain terms that Peter's actions are actually anti-gospel. There could literally be another entire sermon on these passages, and since I don't get up here often, I just thought, what the heck, let's do it. Um, Chuck would kill me. Uh, Let me try to capture a few of the main points in this section And then you guys have homework to look at this later during the week with a friend or a church member, or maybe a friend that is a church member, if you got one of those. In verses 15 to 21, in the original manuscripts, there were not quotations. So it's not clear if verse 15 and on is a continuation of what Paul had said to Peter in that confrontation, or these could have been the very words in or, or they could have been like a theological reflection as he thinks back about that confrontation, I think it it makes most sense that it is what Peter said. Uh, It is what Paul said to Peter. But it really makes no difference. The principle is what's most important. So in no uncertain terms, Paul is saying we are justified. And that's just a Christian word for being made right with God. Not by our works, but by faith alone. He is so emphatic about it, he states the idea about three times in just verses 15 and 16. This is the central message of what it means to be a Christian. We are justified and made right by faith in Christ and not by works. Friend, do you think that you still need to clean yourself up a little bit more before finally trusting in Jesus as your Savior? You are never going to get clean enough. Christian, when you sin and really blow it, do you feel like you need to do some good works? before you can come back to God in prayer? That is so foolish. You never did enough good works in the first place to ever come before the throne of God. What makes you think that you can now? We are only justified, made right with God, because we stand before the throne with Jesus Christ as our advocate, as a substitute. And Paul continues his argument. He says, we can't go back to a works-based righteousness We can't begin rebuilding what we tore down. We can't demand and go back uh, to the kosher laws or any other Old Testament laws that would reinstate any idea of being saved by works. Why? Because if we truly have faith in Christ, then we have died to the law. Our lives are no longer under the restraints of the law because the punishment of the law has been satisfied in Jesus' death. God did not get rid of the law. It was fulfilled in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Friend, don't be mistaken. God did not ignore the law and the justice it requires. Every single person that has ever lived and therefore sinned will receive the just punishment of death. Every single person in this room. Everyone. The difference between the one who has faith in Jesus and the one who doesn't is that on the final judgment day, Whether you die or whether Jesus comes back, on that final day, the Christian will stand before the judge and Jesus next to him as his advocate and substitute. But if you don't have faith, on that final day, you will stand alone before the judge. You'll have nowhere to hide. No one will be standing with you. You will bear the punishment alone with no advocate and no substitute. The law and punishment of the law will not be abolished or tossed aside. It was fulfilled. And now, not only was the law satisfied, but new life was given. Justification in Christ leads to life in Christ, a life of faith, a life full of works and action for the Lord. In Christ, Jesus took not only our death, but he gives us life. Relationship with God. Remember, the God, capital G, God. You get God. Is that not shocking and amazing? If you have not trusted in Jesus, what on earth are you waiting for? Again, much more could be said over these verses, but let's move on to some of the application that we must not miss from these verses. So far, we've looked at the two sections of this text, and I'm praying that you're seen and persuaded that our conduct must match our doctrine or we're condemned as hypocrites. It's not enough that the things that we have said, um, it's not enough that they're just stated. They need to be deeply thought out and lived in some way. So let's start with Paul. We'll go through uh, four different people. So, number one, Paul. What do we see from Paul? We see that the gospel gives authority. Remember, we're not reading a current problem that Paul and Peter are arguing about, Peter was obviously in the wrong which is why the Holy Spirit has penned these words for us, we know later from the rest of Peter's life that he did not abandon the gospel, but likely this very confrontation brought Peter to repentance. Paul's using this example as the final linchpin or the icing on the cake to the defense of his gospel authority to the, to the Galatians. Galatians, you can trust my gospel because it has authority to rebuke even Peter. And do you see Paul's genius in all of this? At the same time, he's also giving a real-life historical account of what to do to, the anti, to any anti-gospel teachers. Uh, Paul is, had already written uh, in chapter 1, verse 8, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached, let him be accursed. He's now giving them an example. Of "This is I've done this. This is what you do. And if, if the Peter can be opposed and called out when not being in step with the truth, the truth of the gospel, then whatever schmuck in Galatia is teaching falsely, he can and must be opposed, even if it means being opposed publicly. You see, there's a kind of flattening, flattening out that the gospel does to us Christians. No one has attained enough stature, wisdom, or maturity in the faith that they're above being called out if they're acting hypocritically. Even pastors even our pastors. A couple of things we need to be clear on, though. This passage is not telling us to call out non-Christians. This is not a proof text to go moralize America or whatever country you're from. No, we need not judge those outside the church, but those within the church, especially the teachers. And let's also remember that the book of Galatians is not being written primarily to teachers and a bunch of super-pastors, It's been written to mom and dad, the single working professional, the retiree, the average Joe church member that you and I are. Protecting the church's witness isn't the pastor's job only. It's also the person in the pew. It's also all of our job. Amen? Now, before I leave uh, Paul's example for us, uh, a few last questions. Uh, Food for thought. When you get into conflict in the church, what do you do? If someone were to confront you on your conduct, maybe they even drop the h-word, you're acting hypocritical. Do you repent like Peter or do you go find a new church? Why did you leave the last church you left? The Christian doctrine is that of unity and bearing with one another. Amen? Does your life resemble unity with other Christians and bearing with those Christians that confront you? Church on Mill, our conduct must match our doctrine or we're condemned as hypocrites. Number two, Barnabas. Barnabas, what do you teach us? Notice how Paul makes special mention of Barnabas. Now, why does Paul do that? Maybe he doesn't like Barnabas. Maybe he just threw Peter under the bus and he's kind of enjoying this throwing shade activity. Why does Paul mention Barnabas? Look at verse 13. Paul makes it super clear. Even Barnabas, even he was led astray. Barnabas, the mentor to Apostle Paul, the fearless missionary, often remembered as the great encourager. Even he... Was led astray anybody anyone can be led astray turn to the brother next to you and say you can be led astray I'm just kidding don't do that that's that's just mean that's not nice that's not nice but on a serious note not only can we be led astray but if you live long enough you will be led astray you will wander you will doubt We all will struggle, every single person in this room. And for many of us, we will one day find ourselves in a dark valley where it doesn't even seem like a glimmer of light can penetrate. Perhaps this describes your life today. If so, the Bible says that you need Christ, you need the church, you need the gospel to help you. So Christian, what are you doing to prepare for that day? What are you doing to not be led astray? You need to examine your conduct. Praise God for Paul examining Peter's conduct and confronting him. We need that. I need that. You need that. You need others to examine your conduct, and not only by other people that are just like you. So, the student in the room, do you see the wisdom to have someone your parents' age that is not your parent? Examine your life and conduct. Don't you see how that would be so good for you? Married couples with babies and toddlers that are drilling all over you. I see you. I know your pain. <laughs> you need some of those students to come fill your home with laughter and energy when you're too exhausted for another round of duck duck goose parents you need those who have already experienced sending their their kids off to college who've already walked their little girl down the aisle to give her away in marriage so you need those who are a season of life ahead of you to remind you that you're not running in vain perhaps you're new here and a mature believer look around you look at all the young people here isn't that encouraging on a sunday morning Young people here under the Word of God? What ministry might you have if you committed to disciple a handful of us youngins? And you who are older in the church, I've not forgotten you. Those of you who are retired, those of you who have grandkids, those of you who have been here in this church, more than 90% of the people here, please hear these words. We desperately need your wisdom, your vantage, and view on life. Don't hide in a huddle with your peers. Instead, teach the generations after you the lessons that you've learned. You're living some of the most valuable years of your life right now. Don't waste them. To everyone in the church, no matter the stage of life you find yourself in today, You need more than just another believer or two around you. What you need is the whole church. Number three, Peter. I spent some time earlier trying to unpack why the great Peter feared the circumcision party. Uh, Sorry if it was a little confusing. If you want to talk more afterwards, I'd be glad to. Let me boil it down in its essence. Peter was willing to step away from the truth of the gospel in his actions. Why? Because he feared. Peter was afraid. Fear can lead you to do some foolish things, things you don't even believe to be true. Let me start with a funny example. Have you ever been in an unfamiliar house by yourself? Maybe overnight in a a dark room, maybe the pantry or something, or out in the woods alone at night, and you start getting a little scared? Like some images from the last horror movie you shouldn't have watched start coming back to mind? And you see a shadow or you hear a creak, and you find yourself starting to talk to yourself, Or, or maybe even you start running. you just start like running out of the, wherever you're at. I mean, you don't actually believe a boogeyman is real, but fear has led you to start thinking and actually even doing some things that you don't actually believe in. And it's, it's funny, but it's a true experience for many of us in the room. Fear can lead you to do things that you know to not be true. So, maybe a little more weighty of an example. Consider fear around finances. Has fear around finances ever caused you to do something you didn't believe in? Or fear about your future, security, fear of not making rent this month. Maybe I should clock in on my time card a few more hours than I actually did. I mean, I do work harder than everybody else here and way more productive, and Lord knows I need the money. Or fear that you aren't going to make your numbers on your performance goal again at the end of this quarter. Your boss isn't going to like it. I mean, you know you shouldn't cut corners, you shouldn't cheat, you know God sees all, but fear of getting fired, and you're the only one who brings a paycheck home, and you have a kid. Is it really lying if I just fudge some of these numbers? Maybe your son comes home from college and tells you that he he now identifies as a gay man and has been in a serious relationship with his partner for the past year. And in fact, they now want to get married. Can you imagine telling your son that you don't approve of this because God doesn't approve of this? Son, it's not really marriage because God has made marriage to only be between a man and a woman. What if he never talks to you again? This is your son. Can you imagine the real fear you would have? Maybe it would be better to pray for him. But other than that, we should support him and celebrate the engagement, the relationship, where they're going. I mean, isn't that the more loving thing anyways? The list could go on, because fear too often leads to hypocrisy. Fear is like the fertile soil for sin. Christian, is fear leading you toward hypocrisy? We must be careful to watch our conduct and doctrine, or we will be condemned as hypocrites. Our last example the rest of the Jews, or for all of us. Hypocrisy leads others astray. We see this in verse 13. If our conduct is not in step with the gospel, we stand condemned as hypocrites. Is this not one of the primary indictments against the church? How many of your friends and family, your know, friends and family members say they would believe in Jesus, they would be a Christian if it just weren't for uh, all of the hypocrisy that they see? I wonder, are one of you, that person, did you get drug along to church today but you couldn't really believe the truth that has been said or the in the scriptures because the things that Christians have done to you, even pastors have said to you and done to you, are just too hypocritical. If that's the case, I am so sorry that you have experienced that. That is not how it should be. The Christian faith does not stand true based upon the conduct of the person who has acted hypocritically t- toward you. The faith is not based upon the conduct of the biggest church or pastor, or even the great Apostle Peter. We all fall short in our conduct, all but one. When we acted as hypocrites, God continued to act true to what he said he would do. When we acted in fear, Jesus stepped into our world to take our punishment. When people have fallen short, betrayed, and acted hypocritically toward you, Jesus always will remain true and faithful. My fellow Christian in the room, let us take careful watch over our own conduct and the conduct of our church members. Do you see how we must take this so seriously? Hypocrisy kills the church. It kills the gospel. Hypocrisy kills people. Even in the face of search and persecution, our conduct must remain in step with the truth of the gospel. Even even if it was in the face of death, Persecution might put human bodies in the ground, but hypocrisy will put humans' souls in hell. Let's end with Paul. Uh, let's end with how Paul ends chapter two. Look at me. Look with me. I did. Look with me. You can look at me as well. Look with me at verse twenty. Let me read this. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here is our solution the gospel. Here is the Christian life without hypocrisy. If we really died with Christ, then we have been crucified with Christ. Our old life nailed to the cross, put in a tomb, it's gone. And after we have died with Christ, after you have buried your lusts and passions and ambitions for personal gain, then like Christ, we rise. In his resurrection, we live for Christ. And it's a life of joy and love and self-sacrifice and radical faith for the good of others and for the glory of God. The Christian says with both his words and his life, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for your keeping your word. When we are hypocrites and fail, when we, when we go astray and wander, for the Christian, you are faithful to rescue, to bring us back home, and I pray for anybody here who has not put their trust in you, that they would see that you offer something that nobody else and no other thing can offer. They would turn from trying to do it themselves, and they would trust in Jesus as their only means to being right with you. God, we thank you for all of the good that you have done in our life. and and mostly for Christ, the way that you've saved us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.